The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Alright guys, back again with another episode of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. And in this particular episode, I thought I'd give you just a little preview of um, something I'm going to be working on for Season 3 and Season 4 in particular. And it's sort of two topics in one. One topic is the topic of Prince Matic. If you don't know who Prince Matic is, it's definitely something you're going to want to research. Uh, it's a legend of a particular... Welsh prince who left in the 1100s and came potentially to the Americas and uh, eventually never came back to, to Wales and may have started a Welsh society here in the Americas. It's a very controversial uh, subject, but one I'm very interested in. There is a lot of lore surrounding Prince Matic here in southern Indiana and in Kentucky in particular, and uh, we do have an author uh, who has spent a great amount of time and effort on this subject by the name of Dana Olson uh, from Jeffersonville, Indiana, who wrote The Legend of Prince Matic and the White Indians, as well as Prince Matic, founder of Clark County, Indiana. So I've reached out to Dana and I've made uh, contact with him. And he's been sending me some information. Uh, he's going to give me access as well as access to uh, Jeremy Elliott of the Washington County Historical Society to his archives and the things that he's worked on since the publishing of his book in the late 1980s, uh, including a lot of information that's never been published before. Uh, so two things in here that very much so interest me, obviously the Prince Maddox story, uh, the idea of this white Welsh prince, which I don't think in any way, you know, takes away from Native American legacy um, and what the Native Americans were or were not capable of. I'd still have all the, you know, complete 100% respect for those cultures uh, that I can have. I just find it interesting because we now know the world is a lot smaller than we used to think that it was as far as people moving from place to place and people sailing across the Atlantic Ocean or even Potentially across the Pacific and doing island hopping, right? I recently talked about this with distillation on the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute that there is a preponderance of evidence of distillation predating Columbus in Mexico and South America, potentially tied back to Asiatic distilling practices. As well, you know, in South America, we have these very unique chickens called aracanas, uh, which are missing a vertebrae from out of their backbone, which causes them to be tailless, and they lay green and blue colored eggs. This is a sign of inbreeding depression, and these chickens do predate Columbus. So there's obviously been some trade back and forth. We have copper that was sourced in Michigan being found uh, in the mid Middle East and in the Mediterranean, which is pretty interesting. 
So all that being said, there's a number of things here that I want to tie into that. The other side of this is the discovery of giant skeletons. And I know at some point in time, listen, I get it. It's, it's, it's almost... It's almost commonplace for any of these paranormal or Fortean podcasts to touch on the skeleton thing, the giants, red-haired giants, the Nephilim, the fallen angels, all that stuff. But listen, it's right up my alley, and I'm doing it one way, shape, form, or the other. Uh, so it just so happens that Dana's research uh, tied as well to a couple of archaeologists from the 1800s, including William Borden, uh, who was just down the road from where I live in Pekin, Indiana, uh, they happen also touch on giants as well. So I'm going to read to you a letter today that Dana sent me as well as a legend that he sent me about, um, Mr. Robert Blackhawk Stewart. Now, uh, some of you may be familiar with the recent bridge work that was done between, uh, Indiana and Kentucky across the Ohio river and the, uh, Stewart cemetery, which they had to actually excavate a part of, I believe 17 graves at one point in time. And the, uh, Stewart family, you know, obviously being upset by this, uh, there's an interesting corollary in here that that cemetery may be way older there was also the supposition at the time when all of this sort of controversy was happening with, you know, digging up the graves, excavating the graves, moving the bodies, etc. with the family, the family not being able to get information, that Mr. Blackhawk was also potentially Native American, uh, I believe Delaware, or, or perhaps Shawnee, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it is discussed in this article that I'm going to read to you momentarily. Uh, it has come out later, according to some of the family members, that that's just a legend, although many of the family members also have oral legends that this is also true. Again, this is gray area stuff, and nonetheless, it is all super interesting to me, and I'm going to share it with you guys. So I'm going to share the letter that was sent to me by Dana Olson, then I'm going to share with you the uh, the legend that he sent along with it, and then I'm going to share some giant stories with you guys, because this is where we're headed in Season 3 of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. First, a little textural background, if you will, from StrangeMag.com, An Unnatural History of Indiana, by Tim Swartz. The Legend of Prince Maddock. Of all the legendary stories told of pre-Columbian visitors to the American continent, the story of Prince Maddock of Wales is probably the most fascinating. The Maddock tradition says that a colony of Welshmen immigrated to America in 1170 A.D. and found their way to the falls of the Ohio River in what is now Clark County, Indiana. There they lived for many years before being routed from the area and almost exterminated in a great battle with quote-unquote Red Indians. Prince Maddock is believed to have been born at Daudelon Castle between 1134 and 1142 AD. His father was Owain Gwynedd, who ruled Wales from 1137 until his death in 1169 AD. Prince Maddock was reputed to be brilliant as a naval commander during his father's reign using his men and ships tactfully to repulse or devastate the seaward invasions that were sent by King Henry II. Julius Caesar had reported that the Welsh used large ships and were skilled navigators. Celtic vessels were able to travel on the open ocean and were far superior to Caesar's own Roman fleet. Maddox supposedly made three expeditions to the Americas, reaching the South American coast sometime around 1165. Maddox's last expedition left Wells in the year 1170, and this voyage was recorded as lost at sea in the ancient maritime log of missing ships of Britain in 1171. Prince Maddock might have faded into history had it not been for the curiosity of John Sevier, the first governor of Tennessee. In a letter written to Amos Stoddard in 1810, Sevier wrote about his discoveries of ancient, though regular, fortifications extending up through Alabama and into Tennessee. In 1782, he inquired about the forts to the ruling chief of the Cherokee Nation. The old chief told Sevier that the works had been made by the first white people who came to their lands via the Gulf of Mexico, into what is now Mobile Bay, and up the Alabama River. Sevier asked the chief if he knew where these white men had came, and the chief stated that he had heard his grandfather and father say they were a people called Welsh, 
and that they had crossed the great water in ships. The Welsh, or quote-unquote white Indians as they were later called, moved into the interior of the country using large tributaries and creeks. Along the way, they built stone fortresses incorporating natural features. The trail of the Welsh and their stone fortresses leads directly to the Falls of the Ohio, where according to local traditions, the white Indians made their last stand against the attacking Native Americans. A historical marker in Clarksville, Indiana reads, A prehistoric Indian village site, according to legend, was peopled by white Indians who descended from 12th century Welshmen led by Prince Maddock and destroyed by Red Indians. Since the early days of Clarksville, the Native Americans who lived in the area told arriving settlers that the white Indians were led by chiefs who were yellow-haired giants. They also said that when one of these kings died, the body was buried with great ceremony and a stone grave. In 1898, a man named John Brady uncovered an ancient bronze helmet and shield in a vacant lot on the Kentucky side of the Falls of the Ohio. The helmet was found near a site where in 1799, Six skeletons were found wearing brass breastplates adorned with the Welsh coat of arms. Outside of Clarksville, an extensive graveyard of ancient origin existed on property once known as the Kelly Farm. On this site, thousands of human bones were found. They had been buried in such a way as to indicate that the dead were left there after a battle, and that silt from flooding of the Ohio River had covered them, as the battle had left them. These bones, all of large stature, were identified as quote-unquote not Indian, Unfortunately, massive floods in 1907, 1913, and finally in 1937 completely washed out the site, removing any traces of what might have been the final resting place of Indiana's white Indians. In Jennings County near Columbus, Indiana, a stone mound 71 feet in diameter was excavated in 1879 and was found to contain a number of skeletons, one which was 9 feet 8 inches tall. The skeleton wore a necklace of mica, and at its feet stood a rough human image made of clay, with pieces of flint embedded in it. The excavation was made under the supervision of the Indiana State archaeologist and included guest scientists from New York and Ohio. The Robinson family who owned the property kept the bones and artifacts in a basket at a grain mill near the site until a flood swept the mill away in 1937. At Walkerton, 20 miles southwest of South Bend, a group of amateur archaeologists opened an Indian mound in 1925 and unearthed the skeletons of eight giants ranging from eight to nine feet tall. All were wearing heavy copper armor. Unfortunately, there is no record of what finally became of these fascinating artifacts. Dear Sir, this picture on the first page is a drawing by an unknown artist of a man by the name of Herman Rave. As you can see, the character reveals the fact that he was a learned man who did a lot of work as a journalist. I didn't find this picture of him until about three years after I got my book about Prince Maddock in print in 1987. So that gave me a picture of Rave to go along with the one of Professor G.K. Green who was featured in my book regarding the story about the curse of yellow hair. I've enclosed a copy of the curse of yellow hair in these pages so that you now know the man whom was the author of the curse. Rave emigrated from Denmark at the age of 19 to one of the cities up east, which I think was New York. He apparently wanted to become a newspaper man and so that put him on the track to become a reporter. I have more information about Rave that was written about him when he died in 1929. However, when he lived in this area of Clark County, he became acquainted with the Kelly family, who was living down below the Falls of the Ohio when he was introduced to them. When he went to visit with them with Professor G.K. Green, the brief story he wrote about the curse indicates that he was a very good writer, and I think that he truly believed that what he wrote was very sincere, a very sincere piece of work. I think it also indicates the fact when Rave helped Professor Green excavate some of the giant skeletons in the Royal Cemetery of the Kings, they were absolutely convinced that what they had been told about yellow hair, quote unquote, and his people 
they had unlocked some answers to a very old tradition. Frankly, I also believe that they probably ex excavated more than just two of the graves, because the first worked ones would have generated even more interest to these scientists who were very intelligent regarding the subject of history. The only thing Miss Kelly got wrong on what she told Herman Rave about the great battle at the Falls of the Ohio took place when she said it was Corn Island. But this was probably just a minor mistake because when she told Rave her story, she no doubt was in a deep state of grief. General George Rogers Clark and his men discovered some of the remains of the battle and Clark was convinced that the final battle that Mary Kelly had alluded to took place on Sand Island. I'm sending you pictures of Mr. Valentine Kelly and his wife, Miss Mary Kelly, who became part of the alleged curse of yellow hair. I have some color pictures that I will give you when we get together. Her past pages include a map that was made by a relative of Miss Geneva Gesethus, who was a woman who helped me when I was conducting research for my book. She was a great help, and the relatives and her family served to assist me in finding the cemetery in Clarksville where Robert Stewart was buried when he reached the age of 99. His picture serves me to believe that he has very strong facial features of a Native American. The following article was written in 1912 by Mr. Rave, who Dana Olson just told us about in his letter, and it's titled The Curse of Yellow Hair. Recent murder recalls strange Indian legend of prehistoric white race on the Ohio. The last connecting link with a prehistoric race was destroyed when George Kelly murdered his poor old grandmother and then killed himself at Jeffersonville, Indiana a few months ago. The aged woman had $75 and the 18-year-old boy got it, spent it, and then took his own life when his brother accused him of having committed the crime. The victim was the widow of Valentine Kelly, who was run over and killed by a train many years ago, but she was known among the savants of Indiana as Mary Kelly, the direct descendant of Black Hawk Stewart, a famous Shawnee Indian chieftain whose title dated back to the conquest of the land from a prehistoric race that inhabited it. The little farms that lie close to the banks of the Ohio Falls are to this day fertilized with the bones of this people, and the only clue to their identity was a fragment of song that Mrs. Kelly remembered to have heard her mother sing. Miss Kelly told the writer it had been handed down from generation to generation for hundreds of years, and that she believed it to be true. In fact, there is much to this day to bolster up this belief. At the time of the permanent peace established by General George Rogers Clark, Black Hawk, who was one of the most ferocious of all Indian chieftains, washed the war paint from his face, buried the hatchet, and resolved to devote his talents to the arts of peace. By an arrangement with General Clark, a deed of title from the United States government was secured for him to a plot of land on the falls. And on the very land, for 300 years, the teepees of his forefathers had stood. He was born there, and his bones are buried there. The land never passed out of the family, and it is still held under the original title. This, it should be explained, was not the Black Hawk who figured in the war in northern Illinois. But there is a curse on the place, said Mrs. Kelly to the writer, who knew her very well in the long ago, when her memory was much better than it was in her later years. Yellow hair cursed it and none of my people ever die a natural death. One after another, I have seen them go, and I have always wondered if it will extend to me. If there is anything in it, said old Valentine Kelly, her husband, it will reach me too. The next night, he was walking on the railroad track when a train hit him and killed him. Several of the family have been drowned in the water of the falls, and now Miss Kelly is dead at the hands of her best-beloved grandson, who also slew himself. A few years ago, the old house erected by Black Hawk himself, when he determined to adopt the ways of the Paleface, was destroyed by fire of a mysterious origin. There was apparently no way 
for it to have caught fire. And as she sat in the roadway at the front gate, viewing the smoldering ruins, Mrs. Kelly said solemnly, It is the curse of yellow hair. And her sons believed her, and the neighbors believed her, and it may have been as she said. For three miles, the beautiful river, Ohio and the Indian Tongue, makes a bend between Jeffersonville, Indiana and Louisville, Kentucky, and rushes westward with a terrific roar, inspired by a fall of about 25 feet. In the center of the cataract is what has been long known as Corn Island. On the Indiana side, the big eddy whirls past Wave Rock, the graveyard of many a proud steamboat. In low water, the place is dotted with the dismantled hulks, and just below the whirlpool lies the Kelly property. There is a big spring bubbling out of the side of the path that leads down to the rocky shore that is said to have been dug by Yellowhair. To the right of it, going up the bank, is a graveyard where hundreds of the prehistoric people lie buried, and to the left is the Kelly Farm on the river edge, of which are fifty tombs of the same mysterious people. The first cemetery is undoubtedly that of the common people. They were of medium stature, and were all buried facing the rising sun. Their bones fertilized the cornfields of the farm of Edward Comines on land that was originally settled by William Beach. Occasionally a skull or a portion of a skeleton is dug up by the plow, but the matter-of-fact farmer tosses it back, and the next furrow covers it from sight. Every man who has ever owned the Comines land has met with a violent death. Comines' father was killed by a train a few years ago. The other cemetery contains the bones of 50 dead kings. The tombs are made of rough hewn stone, and the occupants mere all men, and none of whom was less than six and one half feet high. They were buried in setting posture with their faces turned toward the rising sun, and their weapons must have been buried with them, evidently placed in their laps. But the peculiar coincidence is that the left temple of each had been crushed in by some blunt instrument. Whether it was a religious rite or a precaution against burying them alive is a matter of surmise. The writer who opened one of the graves with Professor Green, the eminent geologist and at one time state geologist of Indiana, believed it was a religious rite. The School History of Kentucky says when the first white settlers arrived at Louisville, they found piles of human skeletons on Corn Island and some are found there now. To the early settlers it appeared that there had been a great battle fought and that one tribe had been entirely wiped out. All the skeletons were those of people of medium stature, save one, that of a man, and he must have been seven feet high. On the banks of the falls to this day are found thousands of Indian arrows and spearheads with an occasional battle axe and once a stone owl was found that had probably been fashioned by one of the prehistoric people. This description represents the concrete facts and is the corroborative evidence of the weird tale told by Miss Kelly and her ancestors in their mystic chants of the vanishing of a strange race of people. The story had better be given in her own words to the writer of this narrative. When I was a wee bit of a girl, said Mrs. Kelly, my mother sang me to sleep with the words of this song. It was a sort of chant in the Indian tongue, and I do not remember it all. Translated, so you will understand it, it was to the effect that a white people lived here, on the falls, and that they were mighty. A tall chief with yellow hair ruled over them, and for ages they fought off the red man and held the fisheries at the falls and the hunting grounds for their own. The sun was the god they worshipped, and he appeared to have blessed them with peace and plenty. Yellowhair, our people called the chief, who was a giant. The chiefs and kings must have maintained the great stature by intermarrying in the royal family, probably killing all the females except just enough to perpetrate the race. My mother thought they saved the best developed girls for the wives of the chief in order to perpetrate the governing race. I did not ask her why she formed this opinion, and it may have been a part of the legend, but our people had long viewed the land from afar and determined to possess it. The chief at that time was Hawkwing, the line through which I come. He sent spies to make overtures to the strange white people, and they visited Yellowhair and told him the Shawnee wanted to share with them the fisheries and the hunting grounds. 
Yellowhair listened to the to their statements and then told them that there was just enough for the white people and that he and his people preferred to live by themselves. Then the ambassadors of the Shawnee said that if the white people would not submit peacefully to having them for neighbors, they would slay them and take their possessions. At this, Yellowhair laughed disdainfully and said the sun god would destroy his enemies with fire from the heavens and that every man who took part in such a bloody and unprovoked massacre would die a violent death and that the curse would have effect as long as one of the offending race remained on earth. But Hawkwing had faith in the great spirits. He and his tribe worshipped and he collected his warriors and set out for the home of Yellowhair. In some way, the scouts of Yellowhair learned of their near approach, and he and his people leaped into their canoes and went to Corn Island. The dangerous whirlpools and the treacherous eddies with which they were familiar, they thought would protect them from the less skilled Shawnees. But they did not know Hawkwing. He and his braves had been accustomed to the water from infancy, and they were almost as much at home in the torrent as Yellowhair and his people. So that night, while Yellowhair was peacefully sleeping, in fancied security, Hawkwing and his braves were making canoes and getting ready for battle. Just as the sun was breaking through the murky sky of the east, the canoes of Hawkwing reached the shores of the island. Yellowhair and his people were awakening from sleep and were falling on their knees in prayer to their sun gods. They were in this position when the yells of my people burst upon them. Many were slain as they knelt, but Yellowhair was a warrior, and though taken by surprise, he seized his battle axe and valiantly defended his subjects. With a single hand, he slew more than a score of our people. Then, when he was weary from fighting, Hawkwing confronted him. Behind Yellowhair were his wives and children kneeling in prayer, and in front of him were Hawkwing and his warriors. The two chieftains sprang at each other with their battle axes. My ancestor was used to war and was familiar with all the tricks. As a result, after a terrible encounter, during which both were covered with wounds, Yellowhair sunk exhausted and Hawkwing's battle axe buried in his brains. Maddened by the conflict, Hawkwing turned upon the kneeling women and children and slew them. He and his men kept up the slaughter until not one of the white race remained. Every single one of them had been killed and the scalp lock of Yellowhair dangled at the belt of Hawkwing. Till his death he kept it, and it was buried with him. Then the Shawnee took possession of the houses and lands of the vanquished people, and the Kellys are the last of the victims, for the Shawnees have all gone to the happy hunting grounds, and they have but a remnant of the original blood in them. There is one other little bit of information I can give you on the subject, but I do not know how I learned it. On the island in the falls is a small cave, which was once known as Yellowhair's Bath but which is now always referred to as Crystal Bath. It is said yellow hair bathed in this every day after he prayed to the sun. The cave is of solid stone, and a small stream of water trickle through, trickles through the top, making a natural shower bath, where the fishermen to this day often bathe. Finally, the last of the habitations of the strange people was torn down, and 300 years later, when General Clark came here and found Black Hawk in possession, Nothing remains save the bones of the murdered people on the island. One after another, I've seen my people killed in some manner, and misfortune has stricken them from the face of the earth. Do you blame me for thinking that the curse of yellow hair is upon us? Valentine Kelly, who was a spiritualist, told the writer that he was once standing in a shed near the royal tombs when a gigantic white man with yellow hair peered in the window. He said he saw him as clearly as could be for it was broad daylight, and he would not have made a mistake. However, Mr. Kelly was a firm believer in ghosts and hobgoblins, and it may be that he did not actually see yellow hair, but he believed to, the time of his death, that he had seen him. He permitted Professor Green and the writer to open two of the graves on his farm, but stopped further excavating, as he said the scientists would soon dig up the best part of his farm if he permitted them to do so. But there were originally 50 of the tombs, and now more than 40 remain. The big water washed away some of them, and two were opened by man. One of the best-known archaeologists of Indiana, Dr. W.F. Work of Charlestown, Indiana, found seven similar stone tombs 13 miles from the scene, 
and he notices that the left temple of each dead man was crushed in, and that the bones were those of men of gigantic stature. Dr. Work spent much time in exploring the habitations of the cliff dwellers of Arizona, and had written such much on such subjects. He believes Yellowhair's people were the Mandanid Indians. Orlando Hobbs, also an archaeological authority of Indians, and a man known widely for his learning and research, holds this opinion. There is a rich field for science on the Falls of Ohio, and it may be that, when the distant fields are thoroughly explored, those at home will be given the attention they deserve. In this connection, it may be stated, by way of parenthesis, that adjoining the farm of the Kellys, are 1,000 acres of land that are still in Virginia. Although it is surrounded by Indiana and cut off from the state to which it belongs by Kentucky, yet Virginia gave this land to George Rogers Clark and his heirs forever without taxes in reward for his services in riding, ridding the section of Indians. And it is not on the map of Indiana. Through a mistake in drawing the outlines, it is governed by three trustees, one appointed by Clark County, another by Floyd County, and the third perpetrates himself by naming someone who is to succeed him when he dies. But this is another story. Hey guys, Alan Bishop here, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest, co-host of Distillers Talk, host of the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Are you interested in the distillation of homemade spirits? We're not here to talk about the legality of that or any of the gray area. What we are here to talk about, however, is the fact that the next wave of craft distillers is made up of people like you. That's right, home distillers that are pushing the envelope with very unique recipes, very unique processes, and regionally appropriate spirits. So, if this is something that interests you, I've got something that I think you'll want to check out. My good friend Wayne Herbert at Ozark Stillworks. Wayne himself is a home distiller, and he's designed some very unique, very cool distillation process equipment. It's all modular with tricloves, etc., and you can switch it out onto any kind of boiler that has a triclove or is triclove adaptable. Two unique pieces of equipment that Wayne has already designed that I am in the process of reviewing for the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute are first and foremost the appropriately named Shocker. This is a external coil deflamator. So as opposed to a shotgun style deflamator, the coil on this is on the outside. It can be a two inch or a three inch model. And believe it or not, in the experiments we've already tried, even without packing or plates, you can reach proofs of 170 proof on a single pass distillation. That's pretty damn impressive. It also looks steampunk as shit. The next piece of equipment that Wayne's already got on hand, and these are ready for sale, or they can be in short order, is what we're currently calling the Mr. Fusion, in a nod to Back to the Future. The Mr. Fusion is a pot still style head. It's not quite an onion shape, it's more of a diamond. It's a beautiful piece of equipment that you'll be seeing a lot on the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute. The head itself is worthwhile for pot still distillation, but inside that head is also a small deflamator for either single pass distillation and or plated distillation and or just raising your proof and your purity. Listen, Wayne's got other stuff in the works too, including an inline, reloadable, bypassable, high efficiency, small scale thumper, unlike anything currently out there on the market. The other cool thing about Wayne is he is not afraid to answer your questions about distillation and nor is he afraid to tackle a new project. If you have an idea for a piece of equipment that does not exist out there on the market, Wayne has the fabrication skills as well as the backup with my testing at the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute to design whatever you might have in mind. If this interests you, then check out Ozark Stillworks on Facebook or drop Wayne a line at ozarkstillworks at gmail.com. Tell him that Alan Bishop sent you over.
From the News and Observer, Raleigh, North Carolina, 31st of August, 1883. A Giant Skeleton Discovery on a farm in Indiana of the bones of a man of gigantic stature. Shelbyville, Indiana, August 30th. George Arnold, a farmhand and the employee of Franklin Boots, who lives about 15 minutes west of the city, made a discovery which has excited widespread interest in the skeleton of what once was a man of gigantic proportions, which was uncovered in a gravel pit on Mr. Boots' farm. The skeleton was found in a setting posture, facing the east, and about six feet beneath the surface. Some of the bones were badly broken by a caving of a bank, but the skull and some of the larger bones were taken out intact, and from them may be easily realized the gigantic stature of the being to whom they once gave support. A measurement of the skull from front to rear, the rule passing through the eye socket to the back of the head, shows it to have been about 16 inches, while the breadth of the inferior maxillary was eight and one half inches, showing that the brain must have weighed from four and one half to five pounds. Careful measurements of the other bones establish the fact that the man when alive was not less than nine feet in height and large in proportion. From the appearance of the teeth, which are very large and do not show the slightest sign of decay, although they are worn down almost to the bones of the jaw, the man could not have been less than 100 years old when he died, and of course he may have been much older. The bones of the lower jaw are very large and thick, showing an extent of muscular development in that organ, which is far beyond anything of the present day. How long ago the body of this giant was interred where it was unearthed, or to what tribe or nation he belonged when he trod the earth, and all the majesty of his strength is impossible to say. But it must have been ages ago, as all the indications show that the soil where the remains were discovered had not been disturbed for many generations. Steps have been taken to have casts made of the bones, and they will be placed either in the state collection or some of our college museums. Indiana Geological Survey, 1862, Henry County, Indiana. Bones and skeletons of giant size. Peculiar gravel mound in Henry County, Indiana. This isolated monument of nature at an early period surrounded by water, two roadways from north and south leading to it, made by human agency. Human skeleton 8 feet in height, unearthed, 12 feet beneath surface. 84 ivory beads found an ivory saucer on the breast of giants. A few miles north of Kennard in Henry County, Indiana, is a remarkable mound that covers an area of 5 acres. Unlike other mounds found in Indiana and other states, it is composed principally of sand and gravel and covered by a forest of native trees of a century's growth. There is not another deposit of sand or gravel in six or eight miles. The surrounding country is a plain. This pile of sand and gravel, as stated in above, covers an area of five acres and is of a cone shape. When first known by white men, it had a well-defined ditch around it and two made roadways, wide enough for a wagon, one from the north and the other from the south. Farmers and road builders that needed gravel and sand found these glacial screenings to come handy in the building of public highways, and for a small price per cubic yard, paid to the owner of land found it more convenient than going to Springsport or Mount Summit, a distance of eight miles. After opening this deposit to a depth of 12 feet from the top of the mound, they unearthed a human skeleton whose framework measured nearly 8 feet in height. His skull would fit over the head of a large man, his jaws being massive and teeth in a perfect state of preservation. On the breast of this big chief was a saucer-shaped vessel of ivory, about 6 inches in diameter, containing 84 ivory beads that must have been made from the tusks of a mastodon. The News, October 23, 1925. Mound Giants in Indiana said to antedate Indian. South Bend, Indiana. Eight skeletons, one of them clad in copper armor, and a horde of rare war weapons and bits of personal adornment have been found in a mysterious mound on the farm of Grove Vosburg near Walkerton. Vosburg, a 70-year-old farmer, had long desired to know the secret of the mound, which according to local tradition dates back hundreds of years. Secretly excavating the pile of earth, he came upon a strange burial place. Giant skeletons. 
The eight skeletons lay in circular formation arranged like the spokes of a wheel, with skulls together. Copper breastplates, bands, and other bits of armor adorned the skeletons of one man, who apparently had been of giant stature. Embedded in his skull was a beautifully chipped flint arrowhead. The soft earth of the mound revealed other treasures. Three pounds of ore, believed to be either silver or white gold, lie with the bones. There were corroded copper bands, which antiquarians here believe were used to bind war clubs, two pipe bowls, one of smooth black stone, and the other carved with a replica of a fantastic monster were found. The belief that the bones are not those of Indians, but belong to the ancient and little-known race of mound builders has arisen because of the great size of the bones and the fact that skull formations are not those of Indian types. The skulls seem to have little forehead, and the eye cavities are high in the head. October 26, 1892. Bones of giants found. Well-developed mammoth skeletons in an Indiana mound. Crawfordsville, Indiana. In a large gravel pit along the high bluffs of Sugar Creek, 25 giant skeletons have been exhumed, and the unburying of these mammoth bones is still going on. The last skeleton taken out measured 7 feet in length. The femur and the pelvic bones are twice as large as those of an ordinary man. The grinning skull contained a perfect set of teeth, with an enamel as beautiful as polished marble. The bones were perfect in every detail. The whole number of skeletons thus far found, only two indicate immature development, the remainder representing the framework of a race of men evidently extinct for centuries. This is certainly the first discovery of skeletons in which the characteristic development of giants has been observed. Hey guys, this is Alan Bishop over at Distillers Talk and the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. Are you interested in learning or expanding upon the ancient art of distilling? Whether it's for spirits, essential oil, or tinctures, our friends over at 13 Stills have you covered. With hand-built copper stills made to last, Jason at 13 Stills has the setups you need to produce high-quality product. From 2 gallons to 200 gallons are ready-to-roll Prohibition sets, complete with tricloves and thump barrels with fruit ports. Give 13 Stills a call today at 1-502-424-5283. Tell them that Alan Bishop sent you on over. From Baird's History of Clark County, Indiana, 1909, Chapter 1, Traditional Earliest Inhabitants of Clark County. That the country north of the Falls of the Ohio and adjacent to the river was inhabited by a strange people many years before the first recorded visit of a white man there can be no doubt. The relics of a former race are scattered throughout this territory, and the many skeletons found buried along the banks of the river below Jeffersonville are indisputable evidence that a strange people once flourished here. Of all the legendary stories told of pre-Columbian visitors to the American continent, the Matic tradition takes precedence. The Atlantis tradition, 12,000 years old, the Phoenician tradition dating from three quarters of a century before the Christian era, the Chinese tradition of the Buddhist priest in the fifth century, the Norse tradition of the 10th century, the Irish tradition of the 11th century, and the Matic tradition of the Welshmen in America near the close of the 11th century all lay claim to the honor of being accounts of the first visit of white men to the North American continents. The greatest probability of truth seems to attach to the Matic tradition, and the evidence from many different sources gives it a greater credibility than any of the other accounts. This tradition is to the effect that a colony of Welshmen who had immigrated to America in 1170, found their way finally to the Falls of the Ohio and remained there for many years, being finally almost exterminated in a great battle with Red Indians. Owen Gwyneth, Prince of Wales, died in 1167 and left 17 sons. 
Disputes and contentions arose amongst them as to who should succeed the father, and Maddock, one of the sons, thinking it better prudence to try his fortune elsewhere, set sail with a good company of Welshmen and traveled westward until he reached the shores of another continent. The new land offered such a fair and alluring prospect that Maddock returned to Wales and brought back a considerable number of Welsh to join his colony in the New World. Where they landed is conjecture, but the testimony of many authorities and the stories and traditions of many of the early settlers of this western country prove, to a greater or less degree, of probability that white Indians who spoke an almost pure Welsh tongue existed in several localities. In 1582, the first account of this Welsh immigration to America appeared, and Hocklet's diverse voyages touching the discovery of America, and his authority was Gutton Owen, a Welsh bard who flourished during the reign of Henry VII. The account also appears in an addenda to Cardus's History of Wales, which was translated into English in 1584. In America, the first mention of the Maddock tradition belongs to Captain John Smith, who gives it as the only discovery prior to that of Columbus. But the personal evidence corroborative of this tradition begins with a statement by the Reverend Morgan Jones in 1685. The Reverend Mr. Jones was sent out by Governor Berkeley of Virginia as chaplain of an expedition to South Carolina. Arriving at Port Royal on April 19, 1660, they lay at a place called Oyster Point for about eight months, at which time, being almost starved by their inability to procure provisions, he set out with five companions through the wilderness. His narrative continues as follows. There, the Tuscarora Indians took us prisoners, because we told them we were bound for Roanoke. That night they carried us to their town, and they shut us up close, to our no small dread. The next day they entered into a conversation about us, which after it was over, their interpreter told us that we must prepare ourselves to die the next morning, thereupon being very much dejected and speaking in British Welsh tongue, have I escaped so many dangers that I must now be knocked on the head like a dog? His words were understood by one who seemed to be a war captain, and through his intervention the six prisoners were spared. These men remained with the Indians for four months, and the minister states, during which time I had the opportunity of conversing with them familiarly in the British Welsh tongue and did preach to them three times a week in the same language. Captain Isaac Stewart, an officer in the Provincial Cavalry of South Carolina, in 1782 was captured by Indians and taken westward of Fort Pitt. He and a Welshman named John Davy were kept in bondage for over two years and were finally taken up the Red River to an Indian settlement. Davy understood and conversed with this tribe of white Indians in his native tongue. The Reverend John Williams, LLD, in a book entitled An Inquiry into the Truth of the Tradition Concerning the Discovery of America by Madig, published in London, 1796, gives the testimony of numerous persons who had been among the Welsh Indians in America. These incidents are too lengthy to relate here, but they show that enough testimony relating to white Indians who spoke the Welsh language has been collected by writers in the past to give the story more weight than attaches to the Norse, the Chinese, the Irish, or the Phoenician traditions of pre-Columbian discovery. In later years, historians have delved deep into the subject, and George Caitlin, who published Letters and Notes on the Manners of the North American Indians in 1857, says that the Mandan Indians, among whom he lived and studied their history and peculiarities, were descendants of the Welsh colony established in America by Prince Maddock in the 12th century. This entire tribe of Welsh Indians was almost wiped out of existence by the smallpox in the summer of 1838. In 1842, Thomas S. Hind, an antiquarian of more than local reputation, gave some valuable information touching the Maddock tradition. In answer to inquiries made by John S. Williams, editor of the American Pioneer, he wrote as follows. Mount Carmel, Illinois, May 30, 1824. 
Mr. J.S. Williams. Dear Sir, Your letter of the 17th to Major Armstrong was placed in my hands some days ago. The brief remark, and hence given, you are correct. I have a vast quantity of Western matter, collected in notes gathered from various sources, mostly from persons who knew the facts. These notes reach back to remote periods. It is a fact that the Welsh under Owen in the 12th century found their way up the Mississippi and as far up the Ohio as the falls at that river of Louisville, where they were cut off by Indians. Others ascended the Missouri, were either captured or settled with and sunk into Indian habits. Proof 1. In 1799, six soldier skeletons were dug up near Jeffersonville. Each skeleton had a breastplate of brass, cast with the Welsh coat of arms, the mermaid and harp, with a Latin inscription and substance, virtuous deeds meet their just reward. One of these plates was left by Captain Jonathan Taylor with the late Mr. Hubbard, Taylor of Clark County, and when called for by me in 1814, for the late Dr. John P. Campbell of Chillicothe, Ohio, who was preparing notes on the antiquities of the West by a letter from Mr. Hubbard Taylor, a relative of mine now living, I was informed that the breastplate had been taken to Virginia by a gentleman of that state. I suppose as a matter of curiosity. Proof 2. The late Mr. McIntosh, who first settled near this, and has been for 50 or 60 years prior to his death, in 1831 or 1832, a Western Indian trader, was in Fort Kaskaskia prior to its being taken by General George Rogers Clark in 1778 and heard, as he informed me himself, a Welshman and an Indian from far up the Missouri, speaking and conversing in the Welsh language. It was stated by Gilbert Imlay in his History of the West that it was Captain Abraham Chaplin of Union County, Kentucky, that heard this conversation in Welsh. Dr. Campbell, visiting Chaplin, found it was not he. Afterwards, the fact was stated by McIntosh, from whom I obtained other facts as to Western matters. Some hunter many years ago informed me of a tombstone being found in the southern part of Indiana, with the initials of a name, and 1186 engraved upon it. The Mohawk Indians had a tradition among them, respecting the Welsh, and of their having been cut off by the Indians at the Falls of the Ohio. The late Colonel Joseph Hamilton Davis, who had for many years sought for information on this subject, mentions this fact, and of the Welshman's bones being found buried on Corn Island. The early pioneers of Kentucky, and their intercourse with the Indians, who frequently visited the Falls of the Ohio for the purposes of trade, got from them the tradition of Maddock and Colonel Reuben T. Durant, the president of the Filson Club of Louisville, and the 23rd publication of that society, gives an account which was related to him by an aged Welshman named Griffin in the early 60s. Griffin related as follows. On the north side of the river where Jeffersonville now stands, some skeletons were exhumed in early times with armor which had brass plates bearing the mermaid and harp, which belonged to the Welsh coat of arms. On the same side of the river further down, a piece of stone supposed to be a part of a tombstone was found with the date 1186, and what seemed to be a name or initials of a name so effaced by time as to be illegible. If that piece of stone was ever a tombstone over a grave, the party laid beneath it must have been of the Welsh colony of Maddock, for we have no tradition of anyone but the Welsh at the falls so early as 1186. In early times, the forest along the river on both sides of the falls for some miles presented two kinds of growth. Along the margin of the river, the giant sycamores and other trees of the forest primeval stood as if they had never been disturbed. But beyond them was a broad belt of trees of a different growth, until the belt was passed when the original forest again appeared. This indicated that the belt had been deprived of its original forest for agricultural or other purposes, and that a new forest had grown up in its stead. He said, however, it was possible that the most important of these traditions learned from the Indians concerned a great battle fought at the Falls of the Ohio between the Red Indians and the White Indians, as the Welsh Indians were called. It has been a long time since this battle, but it was fought here and won by the Red Indians. 
In the final struggle, the white Indians sought safety on the island, since known as Sand Island, but nearly all who sought refuge were slaughtered. The remnant who escaped death made their way to the Missouri River, where by different movements at different times, they went up that river a great distance. They were known to exist there by different parties who came from there and talked Welsh with the pioneers. Some Welshmen living at the Falls of the Ohio in pioneer times talked with these white Indians, and although there was considerable difference between the Welsh they spoke and the Welsh spoken by the Indians, yet they had no great difficulty in understanding one another. He further said, concerning this tradition of a great battle, that there was a tradition that many skeletons were found on Sand Island, mingled promiscuously together, as if left there unburied after a great battle, but that he had examined the island a number of times without finding a single bone, and that if skeletons were ever abundant there, they had disappeared before his time. John Filson, the author of the first history of Kentucky published in 1784, was a believer in nomadic tradition, and while in Louisville collecting material for his history, discussed the subject with such men as General George Rogers Clark, Major John Harrison, Colonel Moore, and others. At a meeting of a club of prominent citizens in that city about this time, Filson was invited to attend, and the subject of the Maddock tradition was brought up for discussion. General Clark spoke first, and confined himself to what he had learned from a chief of the Kaskaskia Indians concerning a large and curiously shaped earthwork on a Kaskaskia River, which the chief, who was of lighter complexion than most Indians, said was the house of his ancestors. Colonel Moore spoke next, and related what he had learned from an old Indian about a long war of extermination between the Red Indians and the White Indians. The final battle, he said, between them was fought at the Falls of the Ohio, where nearly the whole of the White Indians were driven upon an island and slaughtered. General Clark, on hearing this statement by Colonel Moore, confirmed it by stating that he had heard the same thing from Tobacco, a chief of the Piankashaws. Major Harrison spoke next and told about an extensive graveyard on the north side of the Ohio, opposite the falls, where thousands of human bones were buried in such confusion as to indicate that the dead were left there after a battle and that the silt from inundations of the Ohio had covered them as the battle had left them. The testimony of many living men of Clark County today bears out the statements about the number of skeletons to be found in the vicinity of the Big Eddy. The late Dr. Beckworth of Jeffersonville had in his possession a skull from this graveyard at the falls, and he pronounced it not the skull of an Indian. The white Indians, or as some of the other Indian tribes called them, the stranger people, were possibly the builders of the mysterious fortifications on the hill crest, 250 feet above the river at 14 Mile Creek. It is without doubt the most elaborate and extensive work of defense erected by the vanished race. It is the only one of its kind in the United States. It has an area of about 10 acres and has the remains of strong fortifications along its exposed front. These fortifications consisted of a wall with watch mounds or towers at intervals, five of which can yet be traced. Students and antiquarians have shown that it was not built by North American Indians, but its origin, like the Battle at the Falls, is made obscure by the hazy lapse of centuries and we can only surmise as to what it was and who built it, whether by the stranger people or the mound builders, but that it was a race previous to the Indians is certain. Bones of a race anodating the Red Indian are frequently found in the mounds in this vicinity. As an historical and antiquarian curiosity, its ruins are far more remarkable and interesting than the dilapidated castles along the German Rhine. Among the traditional or semi-traditional accounts of early white explorers of the Falls of the Ohio, the visit of the French explorer La Salle may be mentioned. The Indiana country was claimed by the French by virtue of his discovery of the Ohio River. The account of his voyage is as follows. La Salle, in 1669, started on a voyage of discovery down the Ohio, and it's said that he floated as far down as the falls of that river, where his guides and crew deserted him. Not daunted by this misfortune, he made his way back to the French settlements to the north. An iron hatchet which he left here in a small tree on the bank of the river 
is said to have been found embedded in the tree 139 years afterwards. LaSalle is credited with being the earliest white man ever in this vicinity, but his discovery amounted to nothing. From shortly after his supposed visit, other explorers began to periodically discover the river until the settlers came and the quote-unquote beautiful river became a highway for travel rather than an entrance into a mysterious land.